This is the Centre for Opposition Studies. And now, Opposition Cast. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Opposition Cast, the new podcast from the Centre for Opposition Studies. I'm Nigel Fletcher and I'm the Centre's co-founder and research director. In this strange world of 2020, lockdown has forced many of us to adapt the way that we work and to replace physical meetings with remote contacts. Many of us have been spending hours each day on video calls and those of us who teach in universities have had to get used to delivering lectures and classes from home. For the Centre for Opposition Studies, which celebrates its 10th anniversary this year, we have planned a programme of lectures and seminars to mark this milestone. Sadly, the current situation has made that impossible. But necessity is the mother of invention, and so here we are, social distancing our way into the brave new virtual world and joining the thousands of new podcasts that have cropped up in recent months. In each episode, I'll be talking to a range of academics, politicians and other interesting people about that most neglected of political subjects, opposition. It's long been an obsession of mine that we don't talk enough about this vital part of the political equation, with the study of politics too often being weighted towards the study of government. But that really is only one half of the story. Opposition matters. It's an essential component of any political system, holding those in power to account and providing an alternative to them when the electorate demands a change. The Centre for Opposition Studies was founded in order to promote greater study of the subject, and since 2010 that's what we've tried to do. As we enter our second decade, we're stepping up the pace, and this podcast is one of several new initiatives that we're launching this year. So, that's the public service announcement out of the way. Now, without further ado, it's time for our first guests. I'm delighted to welcome two people who have already teamed up for us once before at a public seminar we held last autumn at King's College London. It was so interesting, we've decided to get the band back together again for this inaugural podcast. Emily Stacey is in the final weeks of writing her PhD thesis at Oxford Brookes University on the subject of Margaret Thatcher's tenure as leader of the opposition. Her research looks specifically at the numerous foreign visits made by Mrs Thatcher during those years before she became Prime Minister, as she travelled the world to meet world leaders and tried to establish herself as a credible international player. Joining Emily is Sir Adam Ridley, who was a Treasury civil servant until 1974, when he left to become economic advisor to the Shadow Cabinet under Edward Heath. He was kept on by Margaret Thatcher when she took over as leader the following year and became a key advisor to her throughout her time in opposition, overseeing much of the party's policy making and the drafting of the 1979 manifesto alongside Chris Patton. When the Conservatives took office, he then served as a special advisor to Chancellors Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson. As I think you'll agree, two very well qualified guests for our first discussion of the challenges of political opposition in the UK with their unique insights into how Mrs Thatcher approached the role. We recorded our discussion over Zoom last week, and here it is. So, first of all, if we can turn to to you, Emily, you've been looking at Mrs Thatcher and her time in opposition. What was the attraction to you of uh, of that particular subject, and what's been the main focus of your research? The the attraction came in, I was working as a selection of people reporting Westminster at the time of her funeral and so forth. So I was just very interested in the kind of influx of uh, you know, reports and stories that were coming in about her 
And at that time, I was also going back to start an MA. With that comes a fairly lengthy dissertation. And it just so happened that my, one of my supervisors, uh, James Cooper, was working on the Thatcher-Reagan relationship. And we saw that there was an opportunity to look at the Thatcher-Carter relationship that was a sort of not so special relationship in terms of not getting along as well as that kind of um, Reagan marriage that they had. And then that comes into this could be a great PhD topic and then you, you can get carried away. But the focus of the PhD has been initially, I mean, it's evolved considerably and we are now weeks away from, from submitting, but it started off with being a focus on these uh, trips abroad and how she utilised trips abroad in order to learn the nuances of foreign affairs that she would need in order to one day emerge as prime minister. And I think, you know, what's been overlooked is just how inexperienced she was in these early days. You know, she came in, uh, into, into the position in 25 being ill-equipped for power at the time and needed to learn um, a fair amount before she was sort of at that stage. So one way of doing that was by um, going abroad and learning what other countries were doing. So in particular, the Commonwealth and the US, soaking up the knowledge um, as she went. And I guess also at the same time, she's also promoting herself as a, a fairly um, unknown leader at the time. So she's going abroad not only to learn, but also to showcase who she is, what she stands for, um, and to you know show that she uh, wants to be a prime minister in waiting. Um, and then later on, the, the final chapter of the thesis is looking at the impact of the um, election of 79. Clearly, you know, there is the side that this was won by chance because of the winter of discontent and the poor uh, timing of Callaghan calling the election. But I think it's fair to say there is also a credible argument that there was a significant amount of work that went into creating a revived rhetoric or a revived conservative rhetoric that was winnable for an election. There was a massive um, work that was going into this that was, I think, part of the reason why she won in 79. And I don't think it can just be said that it was by chance. And was there anything that particularly surprised you? You said that she was very inexperienced as a, a leader of the party. And so is it right that, that she was perhaps more keen to use foreign visits in that regard, that she wanted to establish her credentials? Because I, I don't think she really had much foreign affairs knowledge or experience at all, did she? No, she didn't. So I think, you know, that was her biggest weakness at the time. She, you know, that foreign affairs was the main area that she needed to develop. And obviously that came by, by the trips abroad. I think what has been interesting or that I've been surprised about is the sort of fragility of her in these early years certainly the first couple of years in opposition so in an interview I did with Peter Jay who was ambassador to the US in the late 70s he recalled just inviting the British press to his um, ambassador's residence in 1977 when she went to see Carter and it was meant to be a sort of like fun off the off the record sort of drinks party and she got into some sort of massive row with a journalist who was winding her up about how they preferred the sort of on the record style um, of briefing the press system compared to the Westminster um, briefing system which was off the record and she got into a massive row and stormed stormed out of the room and he eventually found her in one of his libraries on the floor on her knees just absolutely hysterical tears and he said you know the what he took from that was just how surprising and worrying it was how fragile she appeared to be at this stage in opposition that while she in public she's holding a great deal of confidence and doing all the right things in terms of broadcasting herself behind the scenes she's very much a different person and it comes out so again when I presented with Jonathan Aitken last year at Somerville College he also said that when you know, very different event but when he was dating um, Carol Thatcher he came home one night and found Thatcher in distraught tears on the sofa asked you know what, what on earth could be wrong and she said that she'd overheard 
a group of Tory MPs behind the scenes saying that she was ruining the party. And she said, Jonathan, they're, they're saying I'm ruining the party, you know. And he said, you know, they probably just had too much to drink just forget about it and move on, you know. And he, she apparently said, look, I hurt too, Jonathan. I, I'm human as well. So, and he said it was just sort of surprising to see her, you know, um, becoming very emotional and that fragility coming through. So I think that's been something that's been surprising to me um, in the research. And I guess that is definitely not, not well known. Adam, obviously you have first-hand experience of working with Mrs Thatcher. Did you notice that this sort of lack of experience and um, fragility was something that, that was obvious when, when she took over as leader? On some fronts, yes. I think she had <clears throat> a deep sense of self-confidence as to the kind of direction she wanted to take the party and the kind of, kind of policies she wanted to pursue. She also had deep conviction that we couldn't go on as a country acquiescing gracefully in a gentlemanly decline for another generation, which is what large numbers of people in the centre and centre-right wanted to do. She had, on the other hand, a very weak literature that she wanted to take over, and she certainly was acutely aware of the fact that she had to bring together and work with as many parts of the party as she possibly could. That is a fundamental point that doesn't often come out, but it inspired both the organisational structure of policy making and the composition of the shadow cabinet, and the way in which the policy groups were set up, and the way in which the manifesto was written, and so on. Another thing one realised quite soon, she was actually very lonely. Apart from Dennis, there were a number of people to whom she talked and on whom she relied, but she didn't at that point have the same kind of gang of whatever that you see in some other prime ministers. I, I imagine David Cameron would be such a person. As far as foreign affairs were concerned, I agree with what Emily was saying very much, and it's interesting, it's the stories that she tells. She was, however, keen to learn. And the one thing she didn't think was reasonable was from time to time people would patronise her. And they patronised her anyway, to a certain degree, because of the usual male chauvinism. But they also patronised her for snobbish reasons. You know, Graham's good girl from Grantham, provincial, come up to London, never really seen the big wide world, probably doesn't speak any languages, doesn't know where Calais is. I mean, hints <clears throat> of that used to come in from time to time. And you talked there about the, the way that that influenced the policymaking process. Was it something that had to be built from scratch, or was it something that was able to be put into place quite quickly? Because clearly the Conservative Party at that time had had recent experience, fairly recent experience, in the run-up to 1970 of running policy reviews and, and preparing for government in 1970. And by 1975, that memory was perhaps a little fresher. How much of it was driven from her and how much of it was the party and people around her had that experience to be able to put together a policy review and the preparations that were needed? That's a very interesting question. She knew she wanted to launch a policy process. She consulted her advisors in the Conservative Research Department and one or two other trusted people who were strong on policy, like one or two very good ones, particularly Geoffrey Howe one or two other old and experienced hands like Angus Moore. And she listened also to a number of other people whom she remembered had done good work in developing new policies, for whom Peter Walker would have been undoubtedly one, Tim Raisin another. And out of this, she reached the perception quite early on that Jane Antac then had to accommodate something else, which was too big for Jane. So she synthesized these things in a dialogue with us and others in the structure which you will recall ended up her delegating the supervision of the annual policy-making cycle to a committee chaired by Keith Joseph, 
secretary of Chris Patton and me in the research department, and around it, a group of satellite committees, some standard and continuing, others more ad hoc, which reported each year to the Shadow Cabinet. And that would then go to raw material on which the party would then, or rather the Shadow Cabinet would usually pass judgment, and that then gave us a collection of many of the policies from which we could choose when preparing the manifesto or making policy proposals in documents like the right approach or the right approach to the economy. And was that a sort of evolving structure? Was it one that, that changed as you faced different uh, challenges? Because it was a fairly unstable government. There must have been some thought that this might have to be put into action uh, sooner rather than later. Part was, part was pretty much permanent and unavoidable. I mean, you have any departments of state and each of them will have a set of policies. You had to have a policy group at least reviewing that, even if they come up with minimal conclusions. Part, on the other hand, as you rightly say, was very dynamic, reflecting changing circumstances objectively out there in the world and subjective circumstances like the political processes of the day. So as well as having the standard structure, you had, a, 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 if you like, at least really three super committees, two economic ones chaired by Jeffrey Howe and another one which was a tax committee. And then you had an even more intimate committee of key shadow cabinet political spokesmen. Now that, sorry, economic spokesmen, that was a, a special ad hoc arrangement which developed progressively as time went on and embodied the advice of key individuals like Lord Tokyo. Now going back though to the special topics of the day, you had things like Rhodesia, you had things like nationality, you had things like how to deal with the unions and union law, each of which had moments of surging into major public debate and then perhaps dis disappearing. We never could quite say. We initially were in the background where we thought for a year or so that we were going to have a very tough struggle. And then the Labour Party started making suicide by a series of acts of self-mutilation, beginning with the 1976 um, counter-inflation and public spending measures, and of course culminating in winter of discontent. And already by 1978, we could see that there was a considerable possibility of an early, if opportunistic, election. Therefore, having had two complete policy, annual policy-making cycles, to your point, we had to start thinking very seriously about what would happen were there to be an election. Therefore, one element was the preparation of a draft manifesto, which Chris Patton and I and Dermot Gleeson and one or two other colleagues took charge of in January into the shadow cabinet during March, in and out again, ready to use if an election should happen any time after March. Another element which was very important and discreet was a little exercise called preparation for government, in which I chaired a committee with consulting all sorts of interesting people as to a lot of mechanical issues. How would you set up Downing Street? What do you do with the CPRS? What about the role of special advisors? And so on and so forth. And much else besides. And a lot of this is available in the public domain now. We then, during the course of that year, looked at the whole campaigning process. And this was not so much the research department, but the party in central office. And the decision was made that we could perhaps drive off Callaghan from his possible election decision by having a really tough, starchy and starchy driven, innovative pub, uh, publicity and uh, advertising campaign. So that was another wing of activity. And that changed the nature of the debate in a great deal. But 
something very important has happened. In the years up to late 1978, we basically thought we were in a fair weather world where economic growth would chug along at 2.5%, plus or minus. We could have a program of expenditure cuts, which meant holding a flat level public expenditure, not cutting it in the, to the degree of making it actually decline year by year in real terms. And we would have a dividend that would go towards tax cuts and cutting the deficit. In the autumn of 78, along came the problems of Iraq. And that then initiated a very different kind of world. And we therefore found ourselves having to adjust to not only to the storm the Labour government found themselves in, but what was going to happen to the world economy and what was going to happen to the energy sector, which was a terribly important one. And that added an element of total improvisation to the work we had to do in the first quarter of 1979, just before the election. There's always been this dichotomy in, in opposition between the need to have long-term, properly worked-out policy and more sort of short-term sort of campaigning. Was that a dynamic that you found quite apparent during that time? It obviously comes up, but, but I think, ironically, it was rather easier to this than usual. And the reason goes back to the fact that after the second election, 1974, there was a generalised feeling that the Conservative Party was almost done for. When I went to work for it, I remember one of my distinguished relations saying to me, I was totally mad, out of my mind, the Labour government were going to be like the Social Democrats in Sweden in power for 40 years. And what was I doing? Tucking in my safe, inflation-proof pension and an interesting career in the Treasury to go and work for a bunch of have-beens. Now, in that context, if you talked to your friends in the political journalistic world or the historians, they all said, you know, the trouble is the party has come to a policy dead end. No one knows what they stand for. And there's no coherence. You've got to simply sweep all that away and set up a clear rethought framework. Now, that meant we were starting from ground zero or starting from nil, if you like. And that was much, much easier than to set out a long-term framework. And it was in that framework of mind, that framework of thought, that we set out the two policy documents that I proposed and I took with me. And those were very welcomed by people who suddenly said, how nice you can see what we're trying to do. So I think it was easier for us. That said, parliamentary processes were very important. And from time to time, there was a tremendous pressure from somewhere that the leaders should say this, that, or the other. But I would say that it was easier than down And coming back to you, Emily, we've talked a bit there about preparations for government and sort of laying the foundations for policy. In the international visit, was there a sense that she was laying groundwork for future relationships? I mean, she obviously got on well with some people and, and not so well with others. Can we see in that in those meetings in opposition the sort of origins of later relationships that had um, significance when she was in government? Yeah, I think it's fair to say it was definitely a mixed bag when it came to international relations. I think, you know, obviously famously, she didn't get on well with Jimmy Carter and that they didn't have much time for her and but you know even so with that relationship um when she I think you know she went over in 2011 and they they didn't take to her because she seemed to be she sort of insisted on the meeting when Carter was generally a president that didn't really see um leaders of the opposition and she obviously sort of 
was fairly insulting to them or, or that's that was their view of that meeting but later when she becomes prime minister in 79 she goes over to washington um to meet again and it does seem that you know while personality wise they, they didn't see it eye to eye they could work together i think you know with other leaders um she got on pretty well with indira gandhi who I, I think felt personally close to her because they were both females in the unusual position of being a leader and I think that she had been in a similar situation to Thatcher in having to rise above the ranks so there is I think Hugo Young talks about this in his book One of Us um, about how she asked her how had she done it given that at that time Thatcher was sort of one year in the top position and she you know she, she was just asked for advice and you know later on with other other Commonwealth leaders I think she got on or established good relations with Robert Muldoon who continued to be an ally, and I think you know they, it's fair to say they supported each other. And generally, I think obviously the idea is to get along with the the leader that you're visiting and the prime minister or the president. And she did manage that. I think what really helped her with the U.S. relations was that she had um, taken part in the um, International Visitors Program in, 19, in uh, 1967 and uh, made a very good relationship with Henry Kissinger. So. From that then on, during these sort of trips in 75 and 77, even though it didn't go well in 77, he was very much an ally of her and I think had had her back quite often. And there's a comment, I think, in an FT report of how he said that he felt the Carter administration had snubbed her and sort of gave her dinner for a few nights because she, she was at a bit of a loss. So I think that having that Kissinger relationship helped her tremendously in opposition and in power because he was able to be an, a, an ally and a kind of confidant for her so I think it's definitely true that you know the relationships that she began in opposition helped when she became prime minister. Also the um, significance from the government's point of view of um, a leader going abroad is that obviously the civil service have in mind that this could be the future prime minister so they take a particular interest in what the leader of the opposition is doing when they're abroad because they're often seen as having some significance you mentioned the convention that the leader of the opposition doesn't criticise the government back home whilst they're abroad. There was certainly one trip to the United States where she was seen to have breached that convention and, and did criticise the government's uh, economic policy. That caused quite a, um, a few waves back at the Foreign Office, didn't it? Yeah, no, there's there's definitely, um there was concern over that. And there are speeches that she does say, for instance, that um, Adam's one that, I know Adam wrote, um, let our children grow tall and some children taller than others you know, um, making very big, bold claims on the economy or, or a different approach is, is going out there a bit. But she is obviously looking to, to, to show that the Conservatives are completely re revived party compared to Labour. Uh, yeah, it didn't go down well with, with the Foreign Office. And there was, a, I think it was picked up by the Spectator that there was a bit of a squabble over that. I think there was also a, a rather uh, shirty memo from Jim Callaghan as well about the fact that the, he thought that the ambassador was being a bit too helpful. It's the one I remember seeing. But, but uh, Adam, um, um, Emily just mentioned there um, that one, one of the speeches, is, is that right, that one of the, the economic speeches she delivered abroad was, was one of yours? So you're, you're to blame for this diplomatic Yeah, the main one as well, the one that really went down in history. <laughs> so so, so you're, you get right of reply here, I think, Adam. You you caused this massive diplomatic row with the Foreign Office. Yeah, we did. We set out to do so deliberately. Um, no, it wasn't quite as bad as that. One of the things which made me uh, happy to work with her and made a number of other people who were not necessarily remotely East Asia Five Core Managers was that there was a historical process that had already happened 
by 1974, which was effectively the collapse of the Great Basquiat consensus. It had collapsed for political reasons because of the way the Labour Party was being torn apart and, and, and radically attacked from the left. It had failed for economic reasons because of its ambitions way outgrew the capacity of the economy to deliver. And in those circumstances, various things happened, and you had to be prepared to take a step back and say, we cannot, in a sense, be trying to do all these things, and we need to rethink our approach. And one of the things that's been a very strong driving force for both uh, Mrs. T and me was an obsessive attitude, not to equality, but to total equality, not merely equality of opportunity. And that, combined with lots of other things, we felt would make a very good basis for a speech that charted an altogether different, much more serious, and much more thoughtful approach than any Conservative leader had probably produced for at least five or six years, possibly longer. That's what we felt we were trying to do. Now, when I wrote it, she, there was a lot of give and take, and she said this, and I said that, but um, there's no doubt that uh, we knew that it would cause a great stir. And there's no doubt that some people saw what she was up to. Tony Benn told a friend, aha, watch out. Thatcher now knows what she has to do. We are into a major ideological battle, not just a political one. Now, that's a very interesting and important insight. Because if that was your conviction, if the speech got wide attention, and it got quite a lot of grudging, grudging praise from people like, say, P.J. Young, or certainly from Peter Jenkins, I recall, you thought, we're on to something. Now, there were infelicities in it at the time. There's arguably a case for saying that she should have warned the FCO what she was up to. But what I recall in my relationships with most Whitehall departments at that time was a studious contempt that was barely hidden, barely concealed. And they weren't remotely interested in contacting one. They weren't remotely interested in, in taking one's advice or finding out what we thought we were up to. So in that context, I say it's 50-50. I think the normal convention would have been, if one had wanted to play very straight up and down, to have sent them a draft. So this is the speech we want to deliver at the Economic and Research Institute on Thursday. It's got some controversial stuff in it. You may at the least like, at the least like to con comment on the language. And if you have any really serious worries, do tell me instantly that Richard Ryder and the leader got it. Now, I haven't actually ever checked exactly what happened. I suppose that's the thought. But it was quite an effort getting the damn thing together at all. So it wouldn't have been an easy thing to do. But I don't personally uh, think that it mattered uh, that she caused a stir. I think the fact that some people were pissed off and were critical was all part of the inevitable process of them adjusting to a new world. You touched there on the process of, of speech writing. Now, you, um, I think, worked for a number of months for Ted Heath initially and then went to work for, for Mrs. T when she took over as, as leader. You're one of the few who sort of made that transition between Heath's team in, in opposition and Mrs. Thatcher's. Clearly very different characters. Was there a, a striking difference in their, their working style and how they approached speech writing, for example? Ted's speech writing, writing speeches for Ted was jolly difficult post-74. He was very grumpy. Manifestly, he had to try and find an answer to the great criticism being levelled at him within the party and as far as he was talking to the party, which was that he had pursued monetarist uh, Keynesian policies too far and too fast and blown up his own income policy and, and forced an election which we lost. He equally had to deal with this question of was he collaborating too much with the unions and too tripartite a framework and all that. 
Now, these were the sorts of things which I really would have dealt with in the course of what was then a critical interregnum before the next election, bound to be soon. He didn't want to. It was therefore very difficult to write anything that wasn't fairly mundane, and I and the others who contributed various bits uh, found it challenging almost to the point of no, not knowing what to do at all. Um, I'd be interested to know whether anybody else had an easier time then with him. He was not always difficult to write for, though. I mean, the people who wrote for him earlier certainly thought he was. Um, but with Mrs. T, it was a different thing. If you were really doing an important speech, he had, if it was the party conference speeches, which were the archetypal ones raised to power two, um, Chris Batten and I and the assistants of Rodney Miller used to start preparing weeks in advance and we would produce bits of gut and show them to her and ask about themes and then we would have a, a meeting which she would tell her hair, I'd say, look, look, Chris, look, Rodney, look, Adam, this is really, it's not going to work at all. And absolutely no, he's tearing it all up and go there. What about this and that and the other? Then she would dig around in her bag and find a quotation from Philip Larkin or say, don't you remember that? that piece of some 19th century story says such and such, and then she'd use all these things, and then you'd have to go away and do it, you could do that. But this was the kind of preparation, scaffolding that was then dismantled. And as you got closer and closer to the day, she got drawn into it, and you never could quite say when she would suddenly seize a bit of the, of the of perfection, just say, running away, I'm going to rewrite this myself, absolutely and totally, and sometimes it was brilliant, sometimes it wasn't. She was desperately committed though for the party conference speeches which she knew were of a rhetorical importance to which there is nothing remotely comparable today and she got to remember this was the old world and not new speeches counted delivery counted there was a very large television audience and what you did critically dominated the way it came over the producers could do far less than they had today now as to the substance there was no simple generalization. And sometimes she would argue furiously, what would you expect? What was good at a speech like this? You were dealing with someone minded. And if you're writing for someone with passion and commitment, then you, then you want to face it with a viable case, a very productive case. And there's been lots of stories from other people who've been involved in, I think, mainly in conference speech sort of frenzy. A lot of those focus on attempts to get her to deliver jokes. Do you have any particular insight into her sense of humour? This is something which gets hotly debated, whether she had a very dry sense of humour that people perhaps didn't get or, or whether she had no sense of humour at all. What was your sense? Oh, no, she certainly had a sense of humour and she cracked jokes from time to time. Uh, I particularly remember in Brighton in um, 1978, I suppose it was, when Jim Callaghan made, made his big speech and talked a lot about stealing the Conservative Party's clothes. And she just collapsed in fits of laughter. He was looking at a book of drafts, and something like, I'd like everybody to imagine what he'd be like wearing Mr. Callaghan's clothes. And it was a very simple, but the incongruity of it, he laughed. And... Angus Moore was also in the room, and he and the, the four of us absolutely seized with laughter. I mean, she was perfectly capable of making good jokes like that, just as Ted was. On other occasions, she didn't realise that you were making a joke at all, and she, she had her blind points, and I will tell this just because it's just too good for the truth. When Chris Patton and I were doing the very reviewing, the very first party political broadcast speech from Saatchi and Saatchi, it was being shown off in the best way that producers do it 
a long time Tim Bell was one of the senior producers and they said right then let's just chubby go through it now and Tim then reads out the kind of background which is typical of the script says you know Mr and Mrs Blood sitting in a, a semi-detached house and the first words were as you sit round your sundry joint and Chris and I looked at each other in a very old-fashioned way and on went Tim with action here and then they went all the way through to the traditional and at the end Mrs. T said to the two of us, well, boys, what do you think of that? So Chris and I looked at one another. Um, I can't remember who said it first, but we said, look, there's a real problem about the use of the word joint. She said, are you saying that the Labour Party have done such damage to the British body politic that they no longer eat beef with two grains on a Sunday? We said, no, it's a very different association. And I went into the world of exotic cheroots and all that. But that was... It, maybe he wasn't familiar with the literature at all or with the language, but it was an example of a total absence of it. On the whole, I think he wanted to take things a bit more seriously than many other people. And a deeper sense, the issue is not whether she had a sense of humour, but whether she was willing to allow it to be deployed as an element of lightening the debate, relieving tension, gently getting someone to take to take themselves down several notches and stop being so pompous, which was sometimes very necessary with the Shadow Cabinet. And I think she was weak on that issue. Going back to the manifesto, another sort of dilemma as you draft a programme for government is how much detail do you put in there? And there's the famous quote from Churchill when he was discussing the post-45 opposition um, that he believed that we should be a lighthouse and not a shop window. So there was this sense that rather than having a detailed, long policy programme in lots of detail, that you should just set, set out a, a sense of direction. Which is better? Is it better to be a lighthouse or a shop window? Well, we, we certainly felt you had to have a bit of lighthousing going on, and that was one of the key features of the right approach and the right approach to the economy. Charting a sense of direction, not necessarily making many firm commitments, clearly indicating a willingness to be flexible if circumstances evolve. And that was very necessary for the reasons I was arguing earlier. If you wish to reassert your serious commitment to workable, innovative, interesting, valuable long-term policies. Now, when it came to the manifesto, you had to show you were prepared to govern. And therefore, you had to meet what were the expectations of the bulk of the political community, certainly the Chaturvasi of the Conoscenti and the opinion formers in the newspapers and television. And that meant a relevant degree of detail or a capacity to give the information or a willingness to give it if asked. Now, there was a lot going on in there. It's not a simple question to answer. One of the things we did, though, was the first manifesto of 1978, which was whatever it was, 14,000 words long. We were very proud to have done the bloody thing at all. When the election didn't happen, the first thing we did, going back and having another look at it, was say it was far too long far too detailed. So we cut it, I forget, like 4,000 words, something like that. And it had to have a different emphasis anyway because of the way circumstances have changed. So you probably cut the concrete content by half. As to the detail, different horses for courses. Jeffrey's approach and many others on the social and tax side was to say we give high-level signals and messages that go into the manifesto and into public speeches. And we have a corpus of speeches which are very de detailed and thought up, which are available to everybody. 
any prominent paper who wanted them could get the complete set of all relevant speeches by all relevant party spokesmen in Central Office during the 1979 election. You'll be surprised to hear that almost no one asked this. That's just <laughs> a comment on the uselessness of the media even then. In some areas, you have to be capable of saying, we have subjected this to the examination of the Institute of Chartered Accountants or the Chartered Surveyors or whatever. Otherwise, it just is utterly incredible. In other areas, you have to be capable of doing the opposite and saying, we've heard all these wretched insults. They've all come to talk to us. We're abundantly clear in our minds that they're talking a load of rubbish and we're not going to, we're going to brush it aside. We're going to disregard them while consulting carefully all the way. So not an easy, simple, simple reply. Emily, if I can come back to you on maybe some, some closing thoughts. I'm interested in this idea of whether winning an election at the end of the process is the same thing as being good at, at opposition. We could say that she perhaps was a successful prime minister, but would you say she was a successful leader of the opposition? Oh, that's, I mean, that's a really sort of hard and interesting question because, you know, up until even 1948, I don't think she's ready and I think the consensus was that she still lacked what she needed in order to be a successful prime minister or initially at least. I think that you know the, one of the key reasons why the Conservatives won was because of this kind of new manifesto it was very different to what had come before and I think that that won a lot of support and I think at that time you also got had people that were sort of there's a comment in the archives of how the Conservatives were able to sort of grab soft liberal voters who were sort of easy to change their mind, kind of. We're now in the days where people don't necessarily vote by class, and I think they won a fair amount of liberal support then, which helped with winning overall. Was she a successful leader of, of the opposition? I think up until the very end, probably not. But I do think that, you know, but certainly by, I think one of her first trips as Prime Minister was to see Carter um, in 79, and that did go go well. And I think then, from then on, you know, we're talking decade on, she just developed in confidence, developed in ability, and was clearly a very successful Prime Minister. But I think that compared to, you know, if you look at sort of Blair in opposition, he, he, he seemed to be far more equipped for the job than Thatcher. But all in all, I'd say that there was a, a huge amount of help and guidance that went into making her fit into an opposition leader. I don't think that she did it on her own. <laughs> and, and Adam, you spoke earlier about how she was in a quite a, a difficult position in the party when she took over, facing a lot of internal opposition. What are your reflections on, on that? Did she grow in confidence and... Emily said she thinks that, you know, even in 78, she perhaps wasn't ready to become prime minister. Do you, do you think that, that she was ready? And can you ever really be ready to be prime minister from your experience as leader of the opposition? Lots of fascinating questions there. Very quickly, I think my, one of my first criteria would be, was the general philosophy that leadership and policymaking that I outlined in my first set of comments, one, did she produce lots of technical good work? Did it increasingly command credible support and wide understanding. Was she able to generate the feeling of a strong team? I think she managed all of those things to a greater or lesser extent, and that was a pretty considerable challenge. But there are two things she certainly could not do, nor could anybody else for some time. The first was the personality of the genie or the Jim, 
who had a nice way of patronizing her with the boss, he kept her in a very weakly difficult position in prime ministers questions and in debates generally. And the other thing that begins to color the thing is that suddenly circumstances start changing. Now, the thing that clearly made her successful was that when you got up to the election itself, if you look at the polling rooms, one of the things which we found overwhelmingly was this growing sense in January, certainly maybe earlier, of people saying, we cannot go on like this. We must have a change. Because one of the things that they were most intimidated by was the feeling that the country was in a desperately weak position, that we had to have a government that could somehow either deal with the unions. Now, by January 1979, the only idea that the Labour Party could so much to deal with the unions had been voluntarily exploded. And that was then followed by a brilliant PPD. And it was saying in an aperture where the famous pictures of undertakers piling up their stuff and the streets overflowing with rubbish bags. She appealed in a very personal way to everybody, saying, look, for heaven's sake, can we not work together and get through all this? Now, that, I think, was the nail in the coffin of the Labour Party. And I think it's around that time we find that Bernard Donoghue made a very interesting comment in his diary, saying at a certain stage, he does realise that the day of the election, they were never going to pay ages. They were simply not going to get us, let us be re-elected. And I think a sense of despair overwhelmed the Labour leadership by then. And you could sense it. Uh, the Labour Party had somehow disappeared into the background. And there was no alternative, certainly, than for her. Can I just add a point? Yeah, do. I think when, in terms of the, obviously, when we talk about opposition, it's not just trips abroad. It's, it's about the broader picture. But in these trips, she is successful in terms of doing what she's told to do. And the press reports that come out, are very complimentary. So in that, there's how children go tall speech that Adam was talking about earlier, which made a, a, a big impact. They were probably some of her most favourable headlines, you know, very much that the business world was taking uh, an insight into her and an interest into her. And, uh, she, you know, generally, the headlines were very, very positive in the US and in the Commonwealth trips, which I think is, is important because she does seem to have the ability to promote herself well and she obviously was a great orator she could speak well and I think that got her attention and so you know while she was sort of crying on uh, PJ's floor you know the night before she was very skilled in not showing that fragility in public because that was always the main aim of these trips we want positive press out of this and she you know in that in that circumstance did did the job and obviously all these all these things that get added together only help to um, help her uh, her trying to become prime minister so she made a good impact and a good impression which obviously helped to some to a small extent in appointing them well, thanks very much indeed um adam and emily for joining us in this virtual seminar and emily i think we should say um good luck on submitting the, the thesis you say it's next month that's uh, being handed in we, we are we are slightly um, later than I want to be, but still within. I was meant to think the latest was September, so we are we are good to go. But it, it's just very nerve wracking. I just you know you well, get to that stage where you just want to like go over it and over it, every single comma or whatever. But no, it's a, <laughs> it's a welcome relief to be at this stage. That's for sure. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Emily Stacy there, putting the finishing touches to what I'm sure will be a fascinating PhD thesis. My thanks to her and to Sir Adam Ridley for joining me on this historic first opposition cast and for sharing some revealing insights into Mrs Thatcher's time in opposition. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Do also leave a nice review if you can, and spread the word online using the hashtag OppositionCast. We'll be back again with another episode before too long, and in the meantime, thanks for joining me. Look after yourselves, and it's goodbye from me. That was Opposition Cast from the Centre for Opposition Studies, presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. You can follow us on Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Thank you.